You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. All right, we're talking about Hanukkah, and I would just mention briefly what um, emerges from our previous conversation about Hanukkah, which you can listen to. The basic principle that comes out of all of this is that there is such a thing as the Or HaGanuz, the hidden light, which was available, which was present in the six days of creation, which was then hidden for Tzadikim. And by celebrating Hanukkah, we reveal this hidden light. And because of that, we are able to overcome the challenges of Greek culture and achieve our independence and uh, maintain our identities in the face of the challenges of history. This is a well-known, very often spoken about idea, so I don't have to go into explaining what its sources are. I think, however, it's worthwhile saying a few things about how Mekubalim viewed this idea of Orhaganuz. And I would begin by saying that within the attributes of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, within the personalities of the world of Atzilut, you have two levels. You have one level, which is the letters Yud and He of Hashem's name. And this signifies an area where there is no process. The processes which happen there are so unified and so and so integrated that we can't even discern anything going on. Now, the secondary level, the letter Vav and the letter He of Hashem's name, and on that level, we can discern processes, and in fact, it's important for us because we participate in these processes. If we couldn't discern them, we wouldn't be able to participate in them. The process that we are primarily involved in, in Kol HaTorah Kula, really, is unifying the personalities on the level of Vav and He. Those are usually referred to as um, the six attributes of Chesed, Gvorat, Tiferet, Netzachod, and Yesod, which are referred to collectively as Eranpin, and the letter He, uh, which is referred to as Malchut, or Nukba, the feminine polarity. Now, before anything can be revealed on the level of process, it has to be enveloped and suffused with something called the original light, or hachasadim, it's actually, it's the light of chesed. And the light of chesed, once it is revealed on the first day of creation, it doesn't stop, it continues to go forward, which is why every day of creation partakes in the first day of creation, and that is why it says, instead of Yom Rishon, first day, by the first day of creation, it says Yom Echad, one day. Right? Because it always is the one day that continues to perpetuate itself throughout the rest of the six days. And what this original light assures you of is that, in a sense, the processes that you need to undergo have already been completed. They've already been fulfilled. So it's quite a bit easier, in a sense, to try to undertake a process with all of the challenges and the pains and tribulations that are involved in that process of growth or, or um, development. And with all the risks that are involved in any kind of process, and there's no such thing as a process without risks and without the possibility of failure. And yet, nevertheless, paradoxically, what we're trying to do is we're not trying to do something which hasn't been done. We are trying to reveal something which is already true. And that changes the nature of the enterprise. And this has something to do with the concept of Gilgul Neshamot, reincarnation, which we also spoke about in a previous uh, talk. And that is that you can't really fail because no matter what happens, everything comes back. And what has been left undone, becomes done and becomes completed. 
And if that has to happen through a special act of divine intervention, that's fine. That happens. It can happen through tshuva. It can happen through doing it right the first time. It can happen in many ways, but it is going to happen because there is the truth is that in a way it has already happened. And that's the great gift that we get from the from the Orhaganus. And incidentally, the reason why the Orhaganus has to be hidden away for the righteous and not simply revealed to everybody, because Hakadosh Baruch Hu saw that the that um evildoers should not be enjoying this light. It's not just you know being nasty and recriminatory, it is the fact that if you have if you're in you know, if you are negatively inclined in your way of looking at things, then the minute you get a hold of this light, then you say, well, there's nothing for me to do. I can do anything that I want. Why do anything if it's already true? So it's actually not good for the evildoers, the people, you know, people who have negative attitudes about the process to begin with. If you give them the hidden light too soon, then they simply become passive and fall away from it entirely. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu has to hide the light. So there was a transition that happened between the time of the first Bet HaMikdash and the, the time of the second Bet HaMikdash. In a sense, the world changed, and the world became the object of philosophical speculation as a way of understanding nature, and um, eventually became the subject of scientific investigation as a way of understanding nature. And at that point, something is lost, and there are no longer spiritual ideals that operate in the world in a way that we can directly perceive them. And so therefore, the material plane of existence becomes disconnected from the spiritual essence, and it becomes very hard to find HaKadosh Baruch Hu in this world it becomes much more difficult to find him here. And therefore, the Bet HaMikdash becomes, to some extent, corrupted. And you need a whole miracle of Hanukkah to to bring the Or HaGanuz into the world so that the operations and the processes of Torah and mitzvot can be, can be accomplished again, even in this new context in which we find ourselves. So there's something of the relationship between the emergence of philosophy as the primary method of investigating the world, which was overtaken by science as a method for investigating the world, and which needs a certain rectification, a certain um, amelioration through the property of the hidden light, and Hanukkah is the holiday through which we reveal that in the world. I did a little investigating on the word Pirsume Nisa, you know, Pirsume Nisa means publicizing the miracle. And we often think that uh, publicizing the miracle means informing people who do not know about it that the miracle happened, or maybe informing ourselves. But the funny thing is, is that most, you know, Jews are expected to know the miracle happened, and, and non-Jews, there's no real mitzvah to publicize the miracle for them. So who are we publicizing the miracle for? And and the answer is, is that the word pirsum seems to be not a matter of of um, publicity in terms of sharing information. It is a matter of revelation. We need to reveal the presence of the hidden light even here. So it's an act of disclosure, not an act of informing or conveying information. Rav Avramel pointed out in our previous conversation that all this idea about the meaning of the, the hidden light does seem to reflect back to the holiday of Sukkot. There's a lot of corollary between Sukkot and Hanukkah, and therefore the point that uh, Rav Avramel is trying to make, and you know, based upon some sources in, in uh, Hasidic teachings, Hanukkah is a continuation of Shemini Atzeret and Hoshana Rabbah. And Hoshana Rabbah, as we know, is is an extension of Yom Kippurim, and that therefore Hanukkah takes the concepts of Yom Kippurim and extends them even further. So we have a we have a very strong linkage between Sukkot and Hanukkah, and the most obvious indication of that is Sukkot is a composite holiday. It's got seven days of Sukkot plus Shmini Atzeret at the end, which is a total of eight days, and therefore 
Sukkot is kind of a unique entity in the in the Torah's calendar that it's an eight day unit of kedushah. It's an eight day unit of holiness, which is the only one outside of Hanukkah that we that we have in the calendar. So the idea of Hanukkah being eight days seems to have a connection to Sukkot and in a lot of other ways. We go through the sugya and Masechet Shabbat. You see, there's a lot of a lot of parallels there between between uh, Hanukkah and Sukkot, and we're going to be dealing with with one of these issues or one of these parallels along similar lines. It's worthwhile pointing out that um, in Sefer Melachim, where it discusses Shlomo HaMelech's dedication of the Beit Hamikdash, which which he had just built. Um, it says that he had this dedication happen during Chodesh Tishrei, Yerach HaEtanim, and Shlomo had everybody get together, and they celebrated it twice seven days. So first there were seven days of dedicating the Bet HaMikdash, which was followed by another seven days. And the Pasuk says, goes out of its way to mention that this adds up to 14 days. Okay, which at least indicates that really the two the two holidays, the holiday of the dedication and the holiday of Sukkot, presumably, were connected one to another. And on the eighth day, Shlomo sent the people home and they blessed the king and they went back to their tents, smichim v'tovelev, they were happy and uh, and good of heart for all of the goodness that Hashem had done. The plainest meaning of this idea of seven days and an eighth day is that it refers to Sukkot, which is the seven days plus one additional day holiday that we have in Tishrei. And if the two holidays, the dedication holiday and the Sukkot holiday followed one right after another for in a consecutive 14 days. So that means that the dedication holiday really began on the eighth day of Tishrei, it went ran straight through, including Yom Kippurim, until Erev Sukkot, and then from the first day of Sukkot, you had the Sukkot festival, which continued until the end of Sukkot, and then you had an eighth day, presumably Shmini Atzeret, which means to say that you have to understand that um, when it says you know when it says Bayom Shmini Shilach you know that Shlomo sent everybody home on the eighth day, that doesn't mean they actually picked up and left. It means that there was an additional day for them to stay. And first of all, there, you know, they had to actually be sent, and it was the king had to let them go, and they had to bless the king, and that was the event of the eighth day. But they waited around, of course, for the eighth day to be over before they actually physically picked up and went. So this also, in the end, um, kind of does connect to what we know about the holiday of Shmini Atzeret, where the Midrashim say that uh, the eighth day holiday, nothing really happens there. You have some Korbanot Musafin, but you know the, the festivities of, of Sukkot are over, so what are we still doing here? And uh, and Hashem says, no, I want you to stay with me because uh, um, don't leave quite yet. Stay another while so we can have some time together. And therefore, the eighth day is a, is a day both of leave-taking of Sukkot, but it's also a day of remaining behind. So it is called Shmini Atzeret, eighth day of holding back. It's kind of startling, but you can look at Rashi, you'll see that people actually ate on Yom Kippur. There was no Yom Kippur that, that year, as we would know it. And um, even on Shabbatot, Rashi says that people were eating uh, Korban Shlamim, which is generally on a regular Shabbat, that's never a sacrifice that you would offer and um, it's very common to find in all of all sorts of places in the Torah whenever you have a dedication ceremony for the Bet HaMikdash that there are things that happen during that ceremony during that time period which violate the normative halacha that uh, that follows under ordinary circumstances okay so there is a corollary that really goes back to the time of Shlomo HaMelech between the Chanukah, the dedication of the Bet HaMikdash, and the holiday of Sukkot, except by Shlomo, it's reversed. First comes the dedication of the Bet HaMikdash, and then comes the holiday of Sukkot, whereas if you look at it from the point of view of the of the Chashmonaim, what happened by them was that they actually didn't have a Chag Sukkot because they were 
you know, busy fighting and, and living out on the field. Um, and then the dedication of the Beit HaMikdash happens subsequent to, to Chag HaSukot. But there still seems to be some relationship and corollary there. And uh, if you were to consult the Sefer Maccabim, the second Maccabees, as, it, as it's called, um, which, as I believe Rav Kivalevich also mentioned uh, last time, that this was a an epistle being sent off to Jews around the world, explaining to them what had been going on. And uh, and there it says that insofar as we missed out on Chag HaSukot, we didn't do it this year, therefore we used the holiday of Hanukkah as a way of reenacting the Sukkot that we did not have. And that would be the reason why Hanukkah has eight days. And that might even be the reason for lighting eight candles during the, during the eight days. That's uh, also plausible. But the obvious thing that this is supposed to explain is how is it that we have a Hanukkah celebration for eight days and not for seven days, which would have been the direct uh, corollary with uh, what was done in Shlomo HaMelech's time. So we're going to examine a few lines from the Gemara in Masechet Shabbat, Daf Kaf Aleph, Amud Aleph. This is the quite well-known sugya of Hanukkah, which is located in Masechet Shabbat. And usually, when people start learning the sugya of Hanukkah, they go a little bit further down the page to Amar Rav Huna, Petilotu Shmanim Shamu Chachamim, En Madikin Behem B'Shabbat, En Madikin Behem B'Chanukah. They usually start down there. But uh, I think that the real beginning of the sugya is a little bit further up the page, and um, so that's where I'm going to start. I need to add here the Nerot Shabbat. You are supposed to use certain kinds of wicks and certain kinds of oils because since this is since the lamps are being lit for use during Shabbat, we're expected to use the light. The light is there to help us eat, to help us get around, so we don't bang into things. But the fact that there is a lamp there that we're using also raises some other concerns. It was a very easy thing back then to, uh, if the lamp is not burning quite the way that it should, to tap the lamp or to press the lamp downwards in such a way that you caused more oil to flow to the wick. And if you did that, that would really be a Chilul Shabbat. So in order to avoid this possibility, so the sages enacted several enactments around the idea of Nerot Shabbat. The first one being that you're not allowed to read or do any other kind of, shall we say, activity requiring lots of concentration to the light of a lamp on Shabbat, because you might nevertheless forget and press on it, tip it, so that the flame increases. And even for things that do not require that much concentration, like eating and getting around the getting around the living room and bring the food out of the kitchen and all sorts of things like that, where the presumption is is that you will not forget that today is Shabbat because you're doing these things. Nevertheless, you really wanted to avoid having a situation where the lamp begins to die out and you might come to be Mechalel Shabbat. And therefore, they enacted this idea that you are supposed to use certain kinds of wicks and certain kinds of oils, basically oils that could flow easily through the wicks, and wicks that were conducive to having oil flow through them. And if you did that, you had a rain kind of margin of safety there that you wouldn't have problems that would cause you to fuss with the lamps on Shabbat, where there's a possibility of actually performing forbidden labor on Shabbat. So I'm going to start with a brighta that is being quoted by who we would refer to in the yeshiva world as Rami Bar Chama, um, some of my Sephardi Chavrutot have uh, corrected me on that and say, no, it's not Rami Bar Chama, it's Rame Bar Chama. Okay, but, you know, it's very difficult to erase your previous programming. So we're just going to continue with Rami Bar Chama and uh, whatever his name was, he'll forgive us in Shemaim as long as we're learning his Torah, right? Tani Rami Bar Chama. Rami Bar Chama said over a brighta, Petilotu Shmanim Shamru Chachamim Wicks and oils, of which the sages said, that you're not allowed to light Nerot Shabbat with them. You don't light them in the 
Beit HaMikdash either. Which means to say that if you don't use it for Nerot Shabbat, you can't use it for lighting the menorah in the Heichal, in the sanctuary of the Beit HaMikdash. Mishum Shene'emar, because it says, Lehalot Ner Tamid. Lehalot is the word that the Torah uses to signify the act of lighting the menorah. And its its literal meaning is to cause the lamp to go up constantly. Although, kind of unclear why you wouldn't just say lahadlik neotamit, to light a lamp constantly. Why lehalot? And what does that even mean? You know, one thing that one could say is that a lamp is a vessel that contains oil and a wick. Ner is actually a composite object. A ner is a vessel that has oil in it and a wick in it, and the word ner refers to the whole to the whole thing. But it would seem from the Torah's, Torah's use of the word lahalot that that's not quite accurate. The vessel is just a container because you can't have the oil be in one location if it isn't contained by something. Um, the wick is the vehicle through which the oil goes up. So ultimately, the essential nail, the core of the nail, is the oil itself. It's oil which is contained in such a way that allows it to turn into a fire. And it's going to turn into a fire by, by rising up through the wick and becoming a fire. So if you understand this, then it turns out that the word lahalot nil tamid makes perfect sense because the oil has to rise up through the wick in order to burn. So the act of lighting the lamp is causing the oil to rise up. Lahalot nil tamid. But it is not what Ramibar Chama wants us to know in the end. He has a different angle on it. Hu Tanila, Rami Bar Chama is the one who quoted this Brayta. Vehu Amarla, and he also said it, which means to say that he explained what it means. Kidei shetehei shalhevet ola This means that the flame needs to be able to go up by itself. Velo shetehei ola al yidei davaracher, but not that it should rise up through something else. There's a lot here to unpack, as, as with any as with any line of Gemara. And so the first thing that I'm going to address here is, if we take a look at, you know, who is who is Rami Bar Chama? When does he live? So he is in the, I believe it's like the fourth generation of Amoraim. He's a student of Avchizda. He's a contemporary of Rava. Um, he didn't live very long, unfortunately, and he's very definitely an Amora of, let's say, the middle period of the time of the Amoraim. And a Tana, the person who says, you know, whose words are encased in Braitot or Mishnayot or other kinds of, of uh, texts that come from the period of the Tanaim, that's an early, that's a much earlier period of time. In other words, the end of the time of the Tanaim is Rabbi Yehud Hanasi, basically. You know, how is it that Rami Bar is saying over a Braita that apparently, if not for him, nobody would know about. I mean, he's not hes not the composer of the Braita, but he's saying it over. There are two meanings of the of the word Tana. This is what, what I've been taught. Um, you can have a Tana which refers to a person who lives during the time of the Tanaim, like Rabbi Akiva, like Rabbi Meir, like Rabbi Yishmael, like, you know, like Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. These are all Tanaim because they live in this period of time. And the opinions of these people or the, the, the Torah of these people are encoded in texts which we refer to as either Mishnayot or Braitot of one kind or another. And there are many kinds of Braitot. But the people who spoke these Divrei Torah belong to this particular period in history. Now, another meaning of the word Tana is something of the equivalent of, let's say, a human bookcase. Now, this indicates, by the way, that much of this Torah was still very much Torah Shabbal Peh. It was still Torah that was remembered and spoken. It wasn't Torah that was necessarily written down. There's a big, big debate over when precisely Mishnayot were written down. If I recall correctly, I think the Rambam 
um, is of the opinion that Mishnayot were written down in the time of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, um, but others, I believe Rashi, among them, um, believe that Mishnayot were not written down until until much later. So these remained remembered texts, and a remembered text requires a human um, carrier to 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 bring them forward. So you had certain people who were specialized in remembering these texts. So you could conceivably come across a Braita a long time after the time of the Tanaim that nobody ever heard of, because you know, not all the not all the Tanaim in terms of rememberers of Braithot were necessarily in the same place at the same time. You could come across a Braita that no one had ever heard of. And this is apparently what Rami Barhamma did. And we can I mean I can get imagine it over here over here and tell you a story that, you know, one day Rami Barhamma is traveling to some place and he walks into an old base medrash and he and he sees there there's an old Tana sitting in the corner who's going over his halachot and he sits down and he has a conversation. The old the old Tana says, You know, I know some Braito that just people don't even remember anymore. And, and Rami Barhamma's ears perk up and he says, Really? Teach them to me. And therefore Rami Barhama ends up to be the person who conveys this bright in the Beit Midrash, and therefore this bright becomes part of his legacy to Am Yisrael. Okay, so this is a bright that, if not for Rami Barhama having found it somewhere, okay, we wouldn't we wouldn't know it. That's why he gets to say it over. But it's really an anonymous bright, and the bright is telling us something which is really pretty odd, at least to my mind, uh, wicks and oils, which are not allowed to be used on Shabbat, are not allowed to be used in the Beit HaMikdash for lighting the menorah in the in the sanctuary, in the Hechal. And, you know, really it should be the other way around. I mean, shouldn't we be learning the laws of Shabbat from the laws of menorah? We know this is the Torah commanding us on how to light the menorah. And if somebody wants to say, well, Shabbat is like the menorah, Nerot Shabbat, Shabbat candles are like the menorah. That makes that makes sense. You know, Shabbat candles are a mitzvah midrabanan, and in some way they might actually be comparable to the menorah, which is the which is the real real McCoy, if you uh, pardon the phraseology. But that's not what's happening here. Here we are learning out the menorah from a mitzvah midrabanan to light Nerot Shabbat. And that needs some explanation, and I think actually Rami Bar Chama is is trying to give you that explanation as in part of as part of his uh, comment to the Brayta. So, really seem to be, this is based upon looking it up in the Ramba mostly, that there is no general source about what the wicks in the menorah need to be made out of. Doesn't say anywhere. There is no received halacha in this matter except for Rami Bar Chama's Brayta. Now, this might be odd that there is no halacha like that. There could be several reasons. Okay, One reason would be that there is no halacha like that. That would be a reasonable thing to say. And then you'd have to ask yourself, well, why doesn't the Torah seem to care about what kind of wicks and oils you use in the, in the menorah? On top of which, it really does care about what kind of oil you use in the menorah because it says that you're supposed to use olive oil, right? And that any other oil would therefore be pasul for the menorah. Why wouldn't the Torah require the best possible kind of wicks? The answer could be, remembering, when did they light the menorah? They lit the menorah towards evening, and then they would close the doors of the hechal. When the sun set, the doors of the hechal were closed. Nobody went in all night long, and when they opened up the doors of the Hechal in the morning before dawn, and they went in there to see what the state of the menorah is, they had a secondary activity that they needed to do called Hatavat Hanerot, the improvement of the candles, which follows the Ha'ala'at Hanerot, which is the lighting of the candles. And it was not entirely certain that the candles were still going to be lit when they walked in or the lamps would still going to be lit and lamps could go out all sorts of things all sorts of things could happen since the menorah is basically burning all night long in a place where nobody can see it i think that there's a very strong temptation to think that it doesn't matter really whether it burns all night long the mitzvah is going to be in lighting the menorah 
And after that, you close the doors and whatever happens, happens. It no longer matters. It's no longer relevant. Why? Because Hashem does not need our light. And there's a discussion about this in the in the Midrashim. Like, what is the purpose of lighting the menorah? Do you say that that um, lighting the menorah is an activity that we need to do in order to show respect to Hashem's place? And by showing respect to Hashem's place, we therefore manifest the presence of Hashem there. But it's really all our actions that do it, and we don't do really anything for HaKadosh Baruch Hu in doing so. We create a certain state of awareness in ourselves, which therefore allows us to perceive Hashem's presence in the Beit HaMikdash differently than we would anywhere else. And if that's the case, then who cares whether it's Menorah stays lit or whether it goes out? So here would be a, an instance in which, um, to use the language from later on in the sugya, kavta en zakukla. It was, if the candle, go, if the lamp goes out, we don't, we're not obligated to fuss with it. We're not obligated to ensure that it burns for the entire lot of time that it's supposed to burn. And if that's the case, then in fact, the wicks don't have to be of the highest quality because they don't, really have to burn all night long. And therefore, you would be able to use, if you had to, in a pinch, you'd, have, you'd be able to use things for the wicks which were, which would not be permissible to be used in Nero Shabbat. So Rami Bar encounters his Tana, and he gets this Brita that no one's ever heard of. And this Brita says that, no, 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 no. If you can't use it for Nero Shabbat, then you can't use it in the menorah. And here you really do have to learn out from Shabbat to menorah. Why? Because there happens to be no recorded halachot about what the wicks need to be made out of. So the only thing that you can do is you can start with, okay, so let's look at Shabbat because there we have a transmitted halacha, and let's move that same concept from Shabbat to menorah. But once again, why would we have to do that? Here is where Rami Barhamma comes with his explanation. He gives you basically a new drash on the meaning of the word l'ha'alot ner tamid. That l'ha'alot ner tamid means that the, the flame itself, and here he's using the word ner in a kind of unusual way also, he's referring, using the word ner to refer to the flame more than the oil that's moving through and becoming a flame. And therefore, the flame has to be, has to rise up on its own. So, which means to say that the flame has to be self-perpetuating. Once I light the flame, the flame has to be able to draw up additional oil and continue burning. It has to be able to perpetuate itself over time in such a way that it has at least a very, very, very good chance of making it all the way until the morning. And therefore, you must look back at the laws of Nerot Shabbat to see what kind of wicks are good for creating that kind of flame and Transfer the halacha between Nerot Shabbat to Nerot in the Beit HaMikdash. Now, we're going to have to therefore say why is there no traditionally transmitted halacha concerning the, the wicks in the Beit HaMikdash. It could be that there was a halacha like that, that, that the, the Kohanim used to do it, but they never, but they never made a point of mentioning it or, or talking about it. Somehow that particular piece of information slipped through the crack. And therefore, this brighter comes to reinstate something which was always always true anyway. Once you understand, once you understand how to really read that uh, read that pasuk of lahalot nil tamid. Since this is a halacha that has fallen out of the tradition, which was not conveyed, so therefore, in order to in order to know what that halacha says, you have to go back to the sugya of Nerot Shabbat and learn it out from Nerot Shabbat to the. To put it differently, the Braita that Rami Barhama 
discovered and transmitted to us is teaching us how to reconstruct a lost halacha that we did not receive directly. And the way in which we need to reconstruct this halacha is by beginning with the laws of Nerot Shabbat and transferring them to the menorah in the Beit HaMikdash. So while we are trying to reconstruct a lost halacha, the method in which we do this is by comparing the menorah to Nerot Shabbat. So the way to understand the concept of having the flame rise by itself means that the flame refers both to the visible flame that you're looking at. It also refers to the energy that is contained in the oil. That has to rise up also and join the flame that is already there. So that means that when you light the flame in the beginning, you're not just lighting the flame that is there, you're you are also lighting the flame that continues to go up from the oil into the revealed flame. So that your flame needs to be able to perpetuate itself across all of the time that it's supposed to be lit. So ideally, your flame should be actually burning from evening all the way till morning. So now the Gemara raises a challenge to Rami Bar Chama's Brayta. Tanan, we learned in a Mishnah, Miblaim Michnesei Kohanim Umihem Nehem, from the worn out trousers of the priests and from their belts, they would tear them asunder and from them they would light for the festival of the house of water drawing. We're talking about here where they would have an all-night event in the outer courtyard of the Beit HaMikdash on the holiday of Sukkot. They had four very large poles with um, lamp-type fixtures at the top. They would fill these with a large quantity of olive oil and add a bunch of, shall we say, wick-like material, and light them. And they produced a very intense light so that not only was the courtyard illuminated, but it was it was said that a people had abundant light in their courtyards all over all over the city. And by the light of these lamps or torches, the celebration of the water drawing, celebration that came before the water drawing. So what's the problem? The problem is here you see that they are lighting lamps or something similar to a lamp in the Beit HaMikdash, and they're using something which would not be permissible to use for a wick on Shabbat, because you don't use wool on Shabbat for a wick, because a, a woolen wick does not draw the oil sufficiently well, and the candle or the lamp is not likely to burn properly. So here too, if it's the case that the lightings that happen in the Beit HaMikdash have to correspond to what is acceptable for the laws of Shabbat, then you have a problem. And the Gemara answers, rather straightforwardly, like laconically even, Simchat Beit HaShoeva Sha'ani, that the celebration of the water drawing is different. Okay, the discussion goes on a little bit after this, but basically we've gotten we've gotten to the to the main point. That you have to First of all, learn out the laws of lighting the menorah and the mikdash from the laws of Shabbat. In addition, however, not all lightings that happened in the Beit HaMikdash were the same. The lightings that happened out in the courtyard of the Beit HaMikdash during the celebration of the water drawing, um, this did not require utilizing those kind of... And I'm kind of left wondering, so like, what is the point of this discussion, really? Moreover, why would anybody have ever assumed that the 
lighting for the celebration of the water drawing should be similar or the same as lighting the menorah in the in the Beit Hamikdash, because the lightings for the water drawing ceremony were mostly just to provide light, and you were using very very large quantities of oil and very large quantities of um, fibers to to burn the oil, and could very well be that that such a large quantity of of uh, material would have the required effect of burning continuously even though it wouldn't work in a wick. Right? So why would anybody imagine that we would want the all of the lightings in the Beit HaMikdash to be done exactly the same way, or even approximately the same way? This is a different kind of thing. So I think the answer to this is that the Gemara assumes something about the meaning of the lamps which were burning outside in the courtyard on Sukkot. That the light wasn't just there in order to illuminate the scene so people could see. The light was there to signify that the hidden light that is within the Beit HaMikdash is actually, so to speak, bursting out of its usual framework and moving beyond the temple itself and out into the outer courtyard. And in fact, not just into the outer courtyard, but all over the city, people would be able to see in their own courtyards by the light of these lamp structures. And if that is the case, that we're talking about a representation of the light that is contained in the Beit HaMikdash, which is coming out of the menorah, which has been set up really to burn all night long and to illuminate the inside of the Beit HaMikdash. And we want this self-same light to appear outside the Beit HaMikdash and spread out through the entire environment. So what we need to do, simply in order to maintain that that symbolism and that um, parallelism, is you need to use, you make the big outdoor lamps, the ones that are standing out in the courtyard, to be of the same nature and the same substance as the lamps that are in the Beit HaMikdash. And that is what the Gemara would be thinking at this particular point. And therefore, it has a big question. The question is, so if if the menorah is supposed to be lit with things that are only to be used for Nerot Shabbat, then how can you use that substances which are not acceptable for Nerot Shabbat to fuel or to or to um, serve as wicks for the outside lamp-type constructions, which are spreading the light outward. If only for the matter of symbolic representation, they should be made of the same stuff. And so the Gemara's answer is that, no, they're different. In other words, that assumption that we had about the meaning of the of the um, lamps that were out into out in the courtyard, that assumption is not accurate. The lamps out in the courtyard were indeed, as we posited in our question, just methods of illumination and nothing else. Right? And therefore, there's no need for the substances used in the wicks of the external lamps to be similar to the wicks used in the inner lamps, because this is not part of the inner-outer symbolism. Leaving the conclusion of the Gemara aside, if we go if we go back to the original presumption of the question, we can see here, I think, a whole, shall we say, ideology of both the meaning of the light at the Simchat Beit HaShoeva, the celebration of the water drawing, and the light of Nerot Hanukkah. Namely, that there is a bursting forth into the external reality of the hidden light that is in the Beit HaMikdash. That this originally happens during Sukkot. But, because of the challenges of the, of the, faced by the Hashmonaim, 
in their age, struggling against this new reality of the Greek Empire, it became necessary to expand that idea of the emergence of the hidden light out in a different period of time, basically in the time of Hanukkah instead of just in the time of Sukkot. And this extension of the idea to Hanukkah from Sukkot is therefore also an extension of the same idea out into every place where Jews live. And that becomes the basis of the mitzvah of Nerot Hanukkah. Well, Nerot Hanukkah is an extension of these external lamps that were lit in the in the courtyard of the Beit Hamikdash, and and since at the time of the Hashmonaim, the Hanukkah ceremony, which they had, was a replacement for the holiday of Sukkot that they didn't get to celebrate. So we can only assume that they did something like perhaps the Simchat Beit Hasho'eva at that point, that they really were, they really did set up the big lamps outside in the courtyard. And along with that comes the idea that we're supposed to do Nerot Hanukkah, each person in their own home. And we know from the Halachot that ideally, at certainly time of the Mishnah, proper place to put the Hanukkah lamps is in the doorway between your own personal private space and the outside world, which is something that you couldn't do directly in the Beit HaMikdash because the place for the menorah was inside the sanctuary and the doors were closed. So you had the other lamps outside the sanctuary. But when we get down to our own personal environment, we can do the the Hanukkah in a location which is both inside the house and outside the house, too, at the same time. This also gives us an explanation for why Hanukkah has eight days, because ultimately Sukkot is an eight-day festival, seven days of Sukkot, plus the additional day at the end. Even though you did not have the outside lamps being lit in the Beit HaMikdash for all of seven days of Sukkot either, you certainly didn't have them on the eighth day. But the meaning of the extension of the light from within the Hechal, bursting forth outward, that would exist even if you didn't have the symbolic representation of it. There might be all sorts of reasons why you wouldn't want to do the outside lamps, let's say on Shabbat during Sukkot or on Shemini Atzeret by itself. But the idea of what they mean, that would always be true. You And you would always have a menorah lit on the inside of the Beit HaMikdash, and it, you would perceive its light, or you would experience its light as branching outward into the into the world. And therefore, as a result, when we do Nerot Hanukkah, which is basically summarizing the same process that was going on in the Beit HaMikdash during Simchat Beit HaShoeva, or during the uh, original Hanukkah that the Hashmonaim did in the in the Beit HaMikdash, uh, we would have the opportunity to do our Nerot Hanukkah for a complete eight days, just like the menorah in the Mikdash was lit for those eight days continuously. Therefore, we would have an eight-day candle lighting celebration. And this answers one question that is often asked by many, and that is that there is a portion that we recite in the Sidur concerning the holiday of Hanukkah, which does not mention the miracle of the oil burning for eight days. That doesn't appear there. What appears in the passage that we recite in Shmona Yisrei talks about the war, talks about the victory, and then at the end it simply says, and they lit lamps in your holy courtyards. That's a very interesting thing to say. They lit lamps in the courtyards? If we're talking about lighting the menorah in the sanctuary, that was definitely not lit in the courtyard. That was lit in the sanctuary behind a closed door. So what kind of lamps were they lighting in the courtyard itself? So here the answer would be that they were lighting, since they were reenacting the holiday of Sukkot that they did not celebrate prior, that would explain why you have lamps being lit specifically in the courtyard. And we're not discussing the menorah, which was being lit in the, in the Beit HaMikdash itself, in the sanctuary itself. And indeed, it is true that there's nothing special about 
the menorah being lit in the Beit HaMikdash during these eight days as opposed to any other eight days. What's special is the bursting out of the lamp, of the light of the menorah and the Mikdash outward to encompass the rest of reality or the rest of the world, any place that, uh, that Jewish people live. That's the difference. The difference is not that the menorah is any different during Hanukkah as it is at any other time of year, but that the extension of the light that happens during Hanukkah is special. And therefore, from the fact that the Hashmonaim lit lamps in the courtyard at any time during the holiday of Hanukkah becomes the basis for us lighting lamps of, you know, Hanukkah lamps for all eight days of Hanukkah. But we see from the Gemara that the Gemara has actually kind of gone out of its way to shoot down this whole theory. And it's interesting to think of why. Well, the obvious reason why is because in actual practice, the lamps of the outside were not similar to the lamps on the inside. That's the that's the critique that the Gemara has of this. But we wonder, aside from the actual point of the critique, what is the issue hiding behind the Gemara's position? Else, how would the Gemara prefer to understand the nature of Nerot Hanukkah? And one thing we can, I think, we can say for certain is that the that our Gemara is based on this concept of there being a miracle for eight days, which we commemorate. And it's not related to the idea of the light of the menorah and the Migdash somehow bursting out and, uh, and pervading the surrounding environment. And that's, I think, as far as I can go with this right now. Nevertheless, the idea of the inner light bursting forth and pervading the environment is a, remains to a, a large extent part of the part of the um, halachot of Hanukkah in many ways, and certainly in our practice of how we do this mitzvah, we recite Hanerois Halalu Kodeshem. You know these 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 lamps that we're lighting, they're holy. Okay, we don't have any right to use the use the light. And we don't have any right to use them. We can all we can do is look at them. So that harkens back to the idea that the lamps themselves that we light are extensions of the light of the menorah that was in the Migdash. And that's certainly something which I think most people take for granted, even though our Gemara right here is trying to is trying to really counter that on in very in very strong terms. So Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.